When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Knife Talk is sponsored by Even Heat, the manufacturers of the finest heat-treating ovens available. Find your next oven at evenheat-kiln.com. To the chopper! Welcome to Knife Talk, episode 115. And today we've got another very, very special episode for you. So as well as the usual hosts, myself, Craig Lockwood of Chop Knives, and obviously we've got Jeff Fader of Fader Knives, and the awesome Moreco Momassi of Momassi Fire Arts, there's a fourth one today. <laughs> we've also got the longest-serving ABS Mastersmith of all time, the pioneer of canister and mosaic Damascus. He's a decorated martial artist. He's a world record weightlifter, and he's an airboard pilot. This is just one man. He's done all these things. We've got Steve Schwartzer on the show with us. <laughs> How are you, Steve? I'm near perfect for an old person. <laughs> <laughs> just reading your intro there, you think, Jesus, this is a man of many, many talents. Uh, that's, uh, that's what happens when you get addicted to adrenaline. It never goes away. What you wind up with is an 18-year-old mind and a... 72 year old body that doesn't function as well as it once did. Uh, you, know, you, you just carry on. <laughs> so, 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 where are you, Steve? Where are you based out of, for those who don't know? I'm actually, for a lot of people who don't know, I'm in North Florida and it's very rural here, um, located between Lake George and Lake Crescent which is 40 miles inland from St. Augustine and about an hour and 15 minutes north and west of Daytona Beach. So it's, it's way in the countryside, which I like, and uh, I live in an isolated part of that county. So it's, it's really, it's rural. Uh, the guys that have been here really appreciate it because it's quiet. You don't have a lot of sound uh, other than animals. And uh, me and your and your parties as well, obviously. Yeah, and my parties and beating on iron, and occasional <laughs> drag race on an airboat down the lake. That that makes all the neighbors <laughs> smile, and some of them wave with part of their hands, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, you're. I mean, you. I mean, we've we've. It's just Jeff, and we, we've we've met last week, and we have spent. I spent a pile of time with you, and you're just such a fascinating guy. What? What brought you into metalworking and knife making is specifically? I mean, such a long journey. What got you started? I've been at this for, I'd say, 50 years, and it's not actually quite that long. Uh, I started forging in the seventh grade. Uh, we had a shop class then where you actually did stuff. We had asbestos line forges, and uh, <laughs> we made a chisel. I think I made a C plus on that chisel, but I forged that chisel out, and I, that was my first moving of hot iron. I was probably, probably I don't know how old are you in the seventh grade if you don't fail many times, but that was me. I, I, everybody says, well, how, <laughs> how highly were you educated? I said, I would find grades I liked, and I'd just stay in them. You know, that's how, 
but no, I did that. <laughs> and then, so uh, you were 18. <laughs> that was probably in, in 13 or 14 when I did that. Anyway, in my teens, right out of high school, I worked uh, uh, building jet aircraft in a forge shop, and they did a big aluminum forgings and stuff. I was following in my dad's footsteps. He worked at LTV Aerospace. It used to be Temco and Link Boston, and then it became LTV Aerospace. So I worked there for a few years, and we made some what I call knife-shaped objects because every southern male is a frustrated knife maker, some more frustrated than others. Anyway, I would take a piece of steel like everyone did, and we didn't know what it was. We didn't heat treat it, but we made it look like a knife. And so I call it knife-shaped object. And then I moved uh, into the southeastern Florida in 70 and uh, traveled around a bit and worked high lines and radio towers and all kinds of stupid stuff. But, I, you know, when you get married and have kids, you do, you do things like that to feed them. Anyway, I uh, started working out of the Boilermakers local in 1972. And they had boilermakers, iron ship fitters, and blacksmiths, and there were no blacksmiths left in the local, none. And I got a book by Alex Beeler on uh, forging and forging techniques, and uh, there was a page and a quarter, I think, on forging blades. I read that, and it triggered something in me that never got well. I was immediately on the hunt for an anvil. I found a, <laughs> about a 250-pound fisher and a coal forge, a little rivet forge, and I started making knives. And uh, uh, so I was making these fillet knives out of uh, cross-cut saw blades. I was cutting them out hot with a chisel on the face of the anvil. You know, if you can believe anybody, that's stupid. Well, that's what I knew about blacksmithing. Anyway, you can tear up an anvil. Uh, <laughs> anyway, my friends all told me that I was wonderful, so I assumed that I was. And uh, so after a, <laughs> a couple of years of that, you know, every time I see one of these new guys, I have arrived. I'm the man. So guess what? I've arrived so many times that I get free, free, free Uber in that place. Anyway, I, I, ran, I ran into a guy named Bobby, Bobby Tyson. I'll never forget the guy. He he, uh, he was up on a job I was on, and this was in the seven early early seventies. I went up to him and I said, "I had three of these old fillet knives in my hip pocket, racks." wrapped up in an old snotty rag. And, and what was in my head was, I'm going to show this guy something about making knives. You know, my friend told me I was wonderful. <laughs> and I believed them. Anyway, so I went up to this guy, and he's leaning up against that real humble fellow. And uh, his name was Bobby Tyson. I said, Bobby, I said, I hear you make knives. And he said, well, I'll try. Real humble. Pulled out the most beautiful pocket knife I'd ever seen in my life. It walked and talked. And it was made out of some kind of mystery steel called D2. I never heard of such a thing. Anyway, he, he, he showed it to me, and I started to crab away from him. I didn't want him to see that jump in my pocket. And uh, <laughs> so he finally forced, forced me into pulling my snotty rag out and showing him those knives. And all I can say is he was kind. And then he made a fatal mistake. He says, uh, you know, they, I got books on making knives. I said, you what? There, there are books on this. I thought I was the only guy alive doing this stuff. I said, you got a knife, you got it at the hardware store. Anyway, I said, where do you live? He said, Jacksonville. And then he made the worst mistake of his life. He offered to let me come visit. And he literally changed my life and moved me ahead five years in the business in a weekend. Mm, and I wow. bet I, I made 
30 pocket knives before I made one that, could, that didn't need a pair of vice grips to help open it. But I finally got it. <laughs> and uh, people ask me, so why do you put such strong springs in these knives? And I said, well, sir, that's a manly knife. If you can't open it, you don't need it. <laughs> anyway, I finally learned to do them. <laughs> but that's yeah. how it got started in it. And by 80, I had been written up. And uh, I started uh, forge welding in about 76, early, early, early 76. And I was taught by Al Pendray's father. I went over and spent about half a day, and he showed me how to forge weld, and then I went crazy with it. And by 80, I was doing composite bars and Merovinian patterns, and, and I was just starting to uh, dabble in the mosaic stuff. And uh, mm. I never had anybody tell me, no, that's one of the beauties of being isolated. Is you don't have people telling you what you can't do. Or it has to be done this way. I didn't buy into any of that. Mm. And it, and it, that hard-headedness has caused, caused me a lot of trouble over the years because I, if it's not real, I don't buy it. You know, If you can't touch it, it's not there. I want to see it. And then mm. uh, I approach everything, whether it's weightlifting or racing or everything, it's never a little bit. It's always a 1,010%. If I'm interested in it, if I'm not interested in it, I couldn't tell you what the name of it was. I can't remember. That's <laughs> just the way my brain works. <laughs> Old it's nothing. awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the rest of it's kind of history. I'm, uh, at this stage of my life, what I'm trying to do now is teach. I'm trying to pass these techniques on because a lot of this is tribal knowledge. And it's not all me. It's stuff that I've gleaned from others and information and techniques I've learned from other people that they're gone now. And this information mm. needs to be passed on to these young guys. It's like uh, uh, Marika, he does fantastic work. He's taken a few techniques and turned it into a symphony. And uh, same way with uh, Jeff's idea for design and the stuff he's doing. I, think, I find it fascinating, absolutely fascinating what the young people are doing. And uh, like I said, I'm trapped in this old body, but I'm trying to hobble along and they're helping me with all this social media stuff, just like you're doing today. So I'm very grateful for all the help I get. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of knife makers out there so grateful for everything that you share. Because, you know, as you just said, you know, you're, you're a bit of a master on the social media and you, you, can, you can share your tricks and tips. And I'm sure people are very, very appreciative of it. I, I try. That's why I do the one-on-one classes and stuff that I have here. And, and uh, it's just so that I can get wrapped around what the person needs and try to give, give them, you know, what's going to help them the best or what I perceive anyway to be the best grip. Jeff put out a, um, a, a question. Well, a, he asked people to, to send in questions for you. And we've been inundated with loads and loads of questions. Um, but before we get okay. into that, there's just one thing that I want to ask. So I'm looking at your at your bio here, and it says world record weightlifter. How did that happen? When did that happen? I started to take up weightlifting. I, my shoulders got so bad I couldn't pick up a cup of coffee. And uh, <laughs> so I, I started in the re, re, rehabbing that shoulder. And I went into a little local gym down here, and there was a friend of mine. His name is Sheldon Schultz. They call him Duck Schultz. And the guy is a refrigerator on legs. He's as flexible <laughs> as a brick, but he's one of the strongest human beings I've ever met. And he was a cop for 50 years. 
uh, he, 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 he ran the uniform division in Daytona Beach for 27 years, and then he was police chief up here in Crow City for about 10 years. And uh, I went in there, and he was in his late 60s then, and he was doing good mornings with 500 pounds. And people don't know what that is. You're bending over at the waist and standing back up with 500 pounds on your neck. And I went, oh, man, that's right, Bulldog dude. They would screw up, wouldn't they? And he laughed. I said, I, he says, he's real gruff. He said, I need a training partner. I said, I guess you got one. Anyway, so I started training with him. And I'm not built for bench pressing. And plus, I was 60, over 60 years old then. And in uh, seven months, I broke the state uh, state record for Florida bench pressing. And then if, uh, I did that for seven years. I, I broke eight world records bench pressing. And the last one, I think, still stands. It's a AAU one. And it's, uh, of course, all drug tested, drug free. And I bent 408 at uh, 60. Uh, I was almost 63 when I did it. Wow. So if you set your mind to it and got good technique, you can you can accomplish a lot. Yeah. But and I suppose it does help if you just. If you're beating steel all day, that's going to help. Might be helpful. Yeah. Uh, most of your gains are made while you're sleeping. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> you got to, the, the problem is training. And that, an older person trains, your body breaks down, it doesn't heal as fast. So you have to, you can't spend every day in the gym. You got to take days off or you live in a per, perpetual state of pain. And, uh, mm. You know, where your joints and stuff, because you're putting those massive loads on those joints. It's not really, in the long run, it's probably not good for you, but it, it sure made a difference in the way I feel now. As uh, seven years of that, I finally quit uh, doing it because that uh, my buddy got to be 80 and he stopped. And then it, it got to be every time, every time we go to one of these meets, they drug test us because we were winning. And I like, and we were winning. If you're winning, they're going to test you. Anyway, and, and so I just got kind of fed up with it. But anyway, you see that in any any public contest, uh, whether it's one of these television shows or whatever, there's a lot of difference between what happens to you in your home environment than what happens to you in a public arena. And it's very important to get your head right before you do that because when I went to one of these weight meets, I wasn't competing against anybody in that room. I was competing against the record. That's what I went mm. for. And nothing else mattered. I, I didn't care about who else was there or what they had done or anything. It didn't make any difference to me. I just wanted to beat that record, and that's what I went for. And uh, with that mindset is, is what made me win. So and, uh, it's and Plus training, you know, you got to time the training so that you, you're not in total physical collapse by the time the weight meet comes. It's hard to do. You got to have a good coach. It's you know, it's very interesting that you. I'm starting to see. Just out of curiosity, Steve, do you do you see a connection with your interest in uh, bladesmithing and your other interests in like? Weightlifting? Do you do you see a parallel in that in regards to um, how you envision the completion of it all, or in, even the martial arts? I mean, do you see a connection between all three? Yeah, I think it's interwoven. It's part of our personalities. It's uh, most people that create have some kind of deficiency in their life or 
uh, uh, body image problem or some kind of, uh, with me, it's about 27 voices I have to contend with in my head. You know, as I, like I said, I used to work on these, uh, before I got into real competitive stuff, uh, I would go through these little bouts of depression. And some of them were not so little. It was like being on a roller coaster. Either I was so happy that I couldn't accomplish anything, or I was so depressed I couldn't accomplish anything. And I had a dear friend. He's, he's still my friend. He's still alive. And he he came to me. I used to go in his shop. And uh, this was in 1982. And when I went full-time making knives, I actually got my lungs burned in uh, sulfuric acid gas. Up in uh, I was working in a... Uh, uh, sulfur-fired boiler up in White Spring, Florida, and anyway, they washed the boiler down, and they left sulfur in there, and you mix water and sulfur, you get sulfuric acid. When you weld in it, you get sulfuric acid gas. Back in those days, there wasn't that much protection for the workers. Anyway, I wound up in ICU drowning in my body fluid for five days, oh. and I got over that, and uh, so I couldn't physically go work anywhere else, but I had the knife skill. So I'd go out and and working in my backyard, I had a little shop up in Palatka, Florida, and I'd go work for an hour, and then I'd come sleep two hours. And I'd go work another hour and sleep two hours, and a week went by, and then a month went by, and then years went by. And then other than a short break I took here three years ago, I've never worked for anyone else. I've only made knives full-time since 1982. Wow. Huh. And it's, uh, it's just a mindset. Uh, uh, you... You know, you, I go at it like water running down a hill. Uh, the whole thing is problem solving. You're looking for a way to solve the problem, whether it's a pattern or uh, pick the weight up or do a certain motion that makes you more fluid in a martial art. Is you, you look for a solution to the problem. And then it, you go downhill like water. You either build up, go around, go under, or uh, you find a way. The water will seek its own level. And it's just like these techniques and uh, and metalsmithing, they're not endemic to here. Uh, I'll give you a case in point. I've done a uh, a thing. A lot of people call it a flip. I was doing that in eighty on folders down both sides. I can show you pictures of the material, and there's a bunch of it that I did in the eighties and nineties on blades, where I had these plaquettes going down both sides of the center core. And I thought I'd pretty much. Uh, was the first guy to do that. That's what I thought. Mm. Anyway, I wrote a little article about it for Blade and for one of their magazines, a knife magazines, and I called a friend of mine, Rick Furrier, I'll call him out by name. He's he's kind of my go-to material science guy. I love him to death. He's a genius. Uh, we disagree on almost everything in life but metal. <laughs> but I called him and I said, Rick, I said, what's the deal with this? I, I, I said, you know, I want to I wanna get this right. And he said, let me send you something. You better read it before you publish. I said, okay. So he did. And what he did is he sent me a, it was a drawing. It was a pamphlet of a Javanese smith that was using that particular pattern and technique. It was a, it was a, 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 a solution to a problem in 1982. And, no, excuse me, 92. It was 92. I'm sorry, I misspoke. It was 92, and I don't know how old that guy was. And so I had to rethink my solution thing. And uh, so I went, okay, 92. And I don't know how old the guy was. I don't know how long he had been using it. 
And I don't know whether it was tribal knowledge that came from his grandfather or his great-grandfather. It could have been used for hundreds of years. So it was a solution to a problem that nuclei on the other side of the planet and also nuclei much out from Moore Park, Florida. I'm not the only one with a brain. There are other people that come up with solutions to things, and that's, it's common. You know, uh, a guy told me one time, said, there, no, there are no new ideas, just reorganized old ones, but there are solutions to problems. And that particular technique requires a scarf weld. Every one of those joints is scarf weld. That scarf weld has been around for about 6,000 years. So, I mean, it's nothing new. It's just reapplied technology. I, I had to rethink my whole process of discovery. You know, I had to take myself out of it and then look at it as a solution. And that's kind of, kind of the way I work at what I do. So that brings me to the question in regards to in most of the questions that we got from our listeners uh, in regards to, you know, our conversation with you is about Canister Damascus. How did you start getting involved with right. Canister Damascus? That's the easy one. <laughs> that was the easiest question. As a matter of fact, I'll have my chauffeur stand up in the back of the room and explain it to you. It's so easy. Anyway, that's, uh, he's heard my speech before. Anyway, I, I stole that from Jerry Flowers. But anyway, I, <laughs> I was at a, I had gone to a hammer in where I met uh, a fellow named Gary Runyon. And he was uh, the, the powder metal uh, specialist for Teledyne. And uh, I talked to him about it. And he was over there trying to mix up. This was at Batson. I think it was Batson's very first hammer in he had at his house. And it may have been, I, I'm pretty sure that point. I'm, the problem at this age, I forget what my timelines are. But anyway, he was over there trying to mix borax and nickel powder and wick it on the table to weld it. And I, I looked at him and I said, why don't you put that in a piece of pipe, cap it, and weld? And as far as I know, that was the first canister. Huh. And we welded. And then I thought, well, that's the solution to a lot of problems. And then, then right after that, the first powder that I used was my signature. And I, what I did is I had a friend of mine, it's Joe Heidevick. He cut my signature with a wire EDM machine. It's exactly my signature. And as far as I know, it's the first time in modern history a signature's done. Writing has been done for about 300 years and maybe longer in metal. Uh, Lee's gun barrels and stuff were made that. Uh, I had a friend of mine, uh, Glenn Gilmore, took a bunch of slides for me in that Lee's museum back in the 70s. And I had all that material to look at, how they were stacking those rods and making pictures with rods. I knew about that. And I was beginning to experiment with it. All my first mosaic was done like that. Anyway, uh, Joe cut this out, and uh, there was a lot of time involved. Bless his heart, he uh, he uh, he cut that thing for me. It was in a two inch block, and uh, he 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 called me. I went and got it, and I was trying to push these little ten thousand pieces of nickel sheet down in that signature, and it wouldn't go. So I took it back to him. And I said, "Cut that thing in half. I'm going to use it as a die." So I had him burn it from corner to corner of that wire machine, and I tried to push it in there. And uh, it collapsed the whole thing. And to paraphrase Joe, I think what he said was, golly gee, I wish that hadn't happened. But it took him about a half hour. 
and the walls began to smoke from his words kind of thing. And I thought, oh, man, that's not good. And then I asked him very politely, they said, would you do it again? And I'll paraphrase once again, I'll be glad to. <laughs> and that was something like I would die if I messed the next one up. And it was so funny. We were sitting there looking at it, and my name got a little loose in the S's. So my mother always wanted me to be a doctor, so I learned to write like one. Anyway, I had these fancy little loops in my name. And, of course, you had to have little penetrations out of that same base material to go through those loops. And he's looking at it. He says, too bad we can't pour that in there. And I went, oh, my God, we can. And I, I remembered that nickel powder. And I set that up with that nickel powder and poured it in there, forge welded it. And I've still got some blocks of that here. It's, uh, it was, it opened a world to me that I'd never seen before. And then I started applying powder to everything. So can you, and of course I shared it with my friends and they use it. Yeah. Well, for, for some of our listeners, are, some so pardon me, some of our listeners are very new at this, and this is something that is kind of like, can you just give a, a basic uh, uh, explanation of what canister Damascus is? Because a lot of these guys are, you know, they're new to all of it, and they're just want to get a good grasp. Well, number one, you don't need any whiteout to do one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. No, uh, what it is is I started off with canisters I was using <laughs> using solid. And what it is is a four-man hip. And a hip is a hot isothermal press. And uh, a lot of things in industry are welded that way that cannot be welded any other way. But the whole thing about forged welding or any kind of uh, precision welding or diffusion bonding, whether it's with ferrous, non-ferrous, whatever, is oxygen is the killer. If you can get the oxygen out, it will join hands. It likes to, it likes to hold hands. If you get oxygen in there, the oxygen will scavenge all all the stuff and turn it into oxides, and you don't want that. And so the canister was the ideal way to keep that from happening. And the first canisters I did, uh, I stole it. I was going to try. I couldn't afford a hip machine. A, a, a run on a hip machine just to hire it done was, you know, thousand, two thousand dollars for a little block. I couldn't afford that. Well, not on knife maker money. Anyway, so I was trying to figure out a poor man's way to do it. But I built steel canisters, and what I did is I put a T handle on it with a pipe. A, a lot of guys are welding uh, non-ferrous stuff in these canisters now doing the same thing they're purging with argon and what i was purging with was nitrogen i had a old set of uh gauges that you use on uh like putting air uh antifreeze in a, uh, uh the coolant in a car air conditioner and i had a nitrogen bottle and i had a friend with a phone company used to supply me those big nitrogen bottles so it's free and it's nitrogen is inert and you don't have any problems with chemistry at the temperatures I'm working at, so it works fine. So what I'd do is I'd, I'd blow nitrogen down that tube into that can, and I'd put a vacuum pump on it, and I'd vacuum it out to the time to get the oxygen out of it. When I first tried it, I would leave the, uh, the vacuum pump on, and of course the minute you start hitting it, you get a crack in it, and it sucks air all over things, defeated the purpose. But I found out if you left a little bit of positive pressure with the nitrogen, then it would, it would even if it cracked, it oxygen couldn't get in and weld perfect and it weld at temperatures if i showed you the temperatures you could weld at you would call me a liar looking at it mm. i mean you can weld it very way below what these guys are welding at now 
by doing that. And I was so full of myself. I was so happy. I was, man, mm-hmm. I discovered, you know, I set a new benchmark. And I went up to see Daryl Meyer, and I told him all about that. He pulled out the longest, sharpest needle you ever saw and caught my balloon. He says, uh, well, I just put two or three drops of diesel in there and leave a vent hole. I don't have to carry all that octopus rig and that vacuum pump and all that stuff around. It works fine. And I wanted to kill him, but I didn't. <laughs> but, it, uh, <laughs> but it did. And so that's common practice now that people put a little bit of oil or a little bit of kerosene or something in there and it scavenges off. Uh, next thing was uh, getting rid of the canister. And I, I did a lot of patterns where I had sacrificial material on them to control the pattern. I'd, I'd put lots of sacrificial material on but then you had to machine that off. And uh, so I found out that you couldn't weld burn stainless foil to anything uh, that I knew of. And anyway, so I started, I called Bob Dozier, and he had like a half a uh, Connex full of burnt foil. And I got a bunch of it from him. And I layered that on the outside, and then nothing would stick to it. And I'd weld my canister, I'd grind the welds, and the stuff would fall off. And it worked great. I did it for years and years. I did that all, all through the early '80s and on. I still do. I still teach it. I, I, uh, in fact, I showed it to uh, uh, Henning Wilkinson at Mark over in South Africa when I was over there. I've taught it to people for years, and they've been pretty quiet about it. But they're, they've they've improved upon it. Some other people add other things in there that work well, uh, that that work great. But there's, there's a lot of ways to get around it, but there's also a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. And so I, I had a pocket knife. I had a ton of time in the in the billet, and it was a multi-panel billet, and I wanted to put sacrificial material over the outside before I welded it, and I'd run out of this foil. So I put paper in there, copy paper, over the piece, and I welded the edges up. And then I put a rod on it, and I heated that thing up and stuck it in a forge and put it under that chamber's burden, gave it a couple of whacks, and started grinding on the edge, and nothing fell off. I kept grinding and grinding and grinding. I thought, man, I said, sooner or later, that thing's going to come off there. I kept looking, and it would, nothing happened. So I dipped it in some acid, and I could see mosaic all the way around. That paper turned to carbon, then diffused into the billet, made a perfect well. And that's where mm-hmm. I came up with the idea of making all those paper cells and stuff in the powder. You make all those little cells or shapes you want out of paper, and you can fill it up with different powder. Uh, you can look at that display up at Nick Frosty's up there at that New England school, and there's a whole display in there. I had six students up there, and some used paper, some used nickel, whatever, in there, and made some beautiful mosaics. And there was three or four of those guys, and there were four welded in their life. Uh, got those complicated billets together and welded, and they're beautiful. And uh, so I, that that paper just added, you know, it acted like a super flux. So, you know, sometimes you make a mistake and you can capitalize on it. <laughs> but anyway, that's how that works. Amazing, amazing. So this is probably a good time to to, to bring in some, some listener questions. So we sure. have this section on the show where each week people will ask us questions and we're by no means experts, but we try to answer as best we can. Between the three of us, we normally we come through. So this section we call... 
Hey, man, can I ask you a question? So the first question you've actually already asked, you've already answered. People asked, well, we've had a few people. We had Dunblade Works and we had uh, Matt Yazelle. They wanted to know how you remove the canister so easily, which which you just talked about. Right. Um, but the next question is from Racer Racks and Canadian Hobbyists. And what they've asked is, what is it a Damascus? What is on your Damascus bucket list with regards to patterns? Is there anything that you haven't done or that you'd like to do yet with regards to patterns? Yeah, there's a couple things I'm working on. One thing I'm real close on. I've been tinkering with it for years. I'm real close, and I'm hoping to open that bag of worms up and change everybody's position again. It'll be fun. Uh, the other one is labyrinth. Uh, labyrinths and op- optical illusions. I did a big study on diffraction gradient and uh, on how light refracts through steel. Uh, there was some early work done, and I forget one of the Lang boys did one. And uh, it was a friend of Scott Lincoln, but I can't remember who the guy is. It's Kurt Lang. Maybe it's Kurt. I don't know. But he made a knife with a lizard in it. And you couldn't see it in one position, but in other ways, you could see it, and it was through the toyum, just like that refraction you get in wood. And wow. that all all came from a story that we heard early on that there was a Merovingian blade that uh, the guy, he would tip it down in the morning light, and as he tipped the blade up, you could see a dragon climb up the blade, but it had nothing to do with the pattern that you could, the macro, or, uh, macro pattern that you could see in the field. And we tried to figure that out. And uh, I discovered part of it by accident i had a little 25 pound little giant hammer that didn't hit this is back in the 70s and it didn't hit square so it was like doing a little ladder step every time you forged the bar with it and you never could get that step out of the pattern it would you could always see that refraction in it and I thought, well, if I can do a ladder step, I can make a die and do that. And that's the way the early wood plates were done with that uh, rose and uh, that bar and rose, or rose and Kurt, that Kurt bond, they call it. I forget the name of it. But that's all die work. And, it, and what it does is it upsets that structure, even in the crystal in Damascus, causes the refraction in it. Uh, there was a post, like yesterday or the day before, on chevrons. A guy was doing a, had a chevron die, and he was taking the, uh, uh, pattern welded material that put these rows of chevron shapes in there and it was given that chevron to point beautiful work and uh so i mean you know once you deform that structure it's always there it's just finding it you know finding a way to enhance it or uh find some little detail that you can uh call on and make it uh, you know make it stand out so uh-huh. that's that's kind of how that's done very cool. That I get too nice. far off a track, get my meds. <laughs> well, you know that's funny that you say that because you know it is interesting that you've you've done all these uh, these hobbies and professions and, and interests, and they're they're all very you know achievement oriented. They're very discipline oriented, and and the, you know I know you make a lot of jokes about being ADD and you know needing your meds and stuff. But it sounds like you've kind of been able to focus and focus uh, all your attention uh, in your efforts. Yeah, uh, uh, once I set my mind to something, I I can't be stopped. That's what it boils down to. I don't quit. Uh, 
and I surround myself with people that are very goal oriented and are and have like interests. And uh, I learned a long time ago, you don't have to know everything if you have friends that do. <laughs> so being able to call on friends from different technologies is a big deal. But, uh, that guy may not be able to draw anything, but he can give you the material science to allow you to draw something from it. And that's, that's kind of how I followed my path. I try to find myself with the best people I can find. It's like when I started racing airboats, I didn't know doodly squat about airboats. I won the nationals. I won my division in uh, 2014. I had the fastest ride boat in the world for one race. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I had a few wrecks and, and I blew up a lot of money, but I had a fault. But, it, uh, <laughs> but I was running with the guys that were the best in the world. And now when you run with the best in, best guys in the world, that's what you get. You know, you get carried along in that crowd. It's a smart boat. And uh, what you want to do is recognize talent and younger people, and you help them get in that race. Because what happens is they're running behind you, pushing you. They will constantly push you. Look at the look at the stuff that Mariko's done in these few years. It's nothing short of marvelous. His design work is the way he his skill sets and stuff are. And Jeff, you know, I'd like both these guys have excelled in a very short time. And they say, well, well, I've been at it for five years. I've been at it for 10 years. Well, I've been at this 50 years. I've been doing this longer. Most people have been alive. They're in the night business. And, I, and I'm just thrilled every time one of these new guys comes and they create all this wonderful work. That, uh, some people get depressed. I don't even know why I'm doing this. You know, I look at the work like Andrew Mears or, or uh, Salem Straub or those guys or uh, some of the patterns Jason Morris he's doing, and I'm going, wow, you know, you know it, all it does is open a window and to a new view to me, and I get excited, and it makes me want to go do my work all that much faster. That's <laughs> uh, just what keeps me going. Nice. <clears throat> Incredible attitude yeah. to things. So I just want to take a minute to talk about one of our sponsors. Um, we can keep this really brief. It's Clarix Metalworks. They make Amazing grinders. It's the grinder that I use. They make the BG Pro. They make everything in-house in their factory, even even the contact wheels. They make everything. Um, but as well as the amazing grinders that they do, they also have um, wheel attachments, big wheels, little wheels, lots of great stuff. Um, and, and you can now get them a little bit cheaper by using Knife knife Talk 5 as a promo code. You're going to get 5% off. So go take a look at clarixmetalworks.com. Look at their grinders. They're great. I use mine every day. And you can get five percent off with Knife Talk Five. Nice. Let's do some more questions. Morocco, do you want to take the next one? Yeah, this next one is from Paul M. Fr. He says, "What would you say is your weakness in knife making, Steve? If you have one, getting projects finished. <laughs> That's absolutely <laughs> yeah. It's finishing something." That's, uh, I, I'm like a kid with a flashlight. I, I'm running around. Oh, that's exciting. That's, that's what happens to me in school. A bird fly by and I'd be gone for an hour. You know, I'll be working on something, a phone ring, and then I, I find a way to go sit in a chair for 20 minutes and figure out why the phone rang. You know, that's stupid stuff. <laughs> I ought to be working. <laughs> but it's a fact. It's a, it's a, you know, creativity is a double edged sword. <laughs> You pay a price for aberrant thinking. 
<laughs> you no, know what? Uh, the amount of people we've had on the show, we've had so many people on the show, and that's that's something that a lot of people seem seem to have. This sort of being a bit of a magpie. You know, something new and shiny is there, and you just want to go over, and you want to throw everything, like tunnel vision, you want to throw everything into that new thing. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. I want it. You know, I'm building presses and stuff. I, I got to look around the other day, and I'm 72 years old, and I'm buying equipment. What is wrong with you? I just spent all this money on a laser. I, I got this fantastic laser, and it was hand-built by a, a guy that owns a company out in California, and I spent a hell of a lot of money on the damn thing. But learning to use it is like climbing Mount Everest in your underwear. It's really hard in the learning curve is steep. <laughs> if, if you, you got four <laughs> you got four wires on a common trailer that you pull stuff on you know you've got that left turn right turn brake signal i think there's like four thousand combinations of those four wires well imagine taking a 900 pair of telephone cable throwing your little four wires away and putting these 900 pairs of cables on there and trying to do the same job that's what you're up against it's not easy because I'm I'm doing things with it. The guy that built it doesn't know how I'm doing it. Uh, I'm, I'm modifying how the wavelengths are moving on the thing. I'm getting some very, very unique stuff out of it, and it's because I didn't know not to do it. I didn't have anybody telling me I couldn't do it. So I, I played with it. I said, well, I'm doing this. Am I going to break it? He said, no. Well, okay, I'll continue to play this. And... uh <laughs> So far, it hadn't made a dime, but it it's cool. <laughs> what what are you using the laser for? Are you etching or cutting? I, I know. What, what's I'm, the, what's I'm actually, uh, well, I, I, it was all the guys up at Spark Blades' fault. I saw, I saw uh, uh, Curtis Levito had one. He'd done some incredible engraving, 3D engraving mm. with it, and I wanted one. And so I made it happen. I just got, you know, past the moment I got carried away, and I spent a hell of a bunch of money and bought it and uh so i'm exploring that and i've got a young guy that i work with on that thing that keeps me out of trouble straightens out my files and everything and uh it's going to add a new dimension to my work uh uh jeff saw a little piece of it i had some little celtic crosses on the pen of a folder you can't do it any other way it's micro machining mm. And it's micro-machining like you wouldn't believe. I mean, you can do realistic things with it. You can color with it. There's all kinds. Of, I see the possibilities of it. It's like opening a... It's like some guy that's been isolated on an island for 20 years, and he finds a box of Legos. You know, it's like, oh, my God, look what you can do with this. And, you know, and then you get the directions out, and half of them are gone, and you can't read it because it's in some language you don't understand. And you're trying to figure out how this thing works. And in the meantime, you're making really cool stuff with it. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, this next one is from Hemkler Blacksmithing. It says, Dear Mr. Schwarzer, uh, with all your years of experience and numerous blades you've created, are there any blades that you look back at and herald as your Mona Lisa? The one or ones that you felt exemplified your abilities to a higher degree than the rest? Uh, yeah, there, there, there's actually a couple, but one in particular, that's one I did that shooting scene in back in 90. And uh, it was a man and a dog, 
a man with a shotgun shooting birds over a dog. And uh, that gun barrel was straight. That guy came down from about an inch and a half tall to under a, under a half inch tall. And that gun barrel still straight. That reduction was one of the most profound forgings I've ever done in my life. And that's why you don't see it everywhere. You can manipulate a curve and it's still a curve. You manipulate a straight line and turn it into a curve, you'll never get it back. And you're trying to do that through a machine that weighs 8,000 pounds, and you're trying to feel what's going on. It was uh, very, very difficult to do. I've done some other straight patterns since then that were difficult to do. I've done some plug welding, Chevron welding, all kinds of stuff. But that one, reducing images, I just recently went out uh, with Lonnie Jensen. He hired me to come out and give him a one-on-one class in Salt Lake and we did elk. We did two different elk and they they came out uh, I, I hate to use the term perfect but they were they looked exactly like they did when they were big and now they're tiny. They'll fit on a dime. And they started off two and a half inch in a two and a half inch block. They, that ability to control that forging without distortion is kind of the pinnacle of what I do. But that shooting scene where I had to make the dog, make the man, the guy's got a bill on his cap, heels on his boots, and the gun barrel's still straight. The dog's pointing. Uh, he's got, you know, his leg comes around. He's got a loop in it. And then the birds, if you put them under high magnification, you can still see their wing feathers or flight feathers on those birds. And they're tiny little things. They're about 16th of an inch across. They start off three quarters of an inch across. And they're oh, still wow. all pristine. And that's, that's hard to do. That, that one was hard to do. I, I'm actually working on another project with Henning Wilkerson. That's, uh, it's similar uh, in complexity. And it's another collab that I'm doing with, with Henning. He's, uh, he's one of those guys from South Africa that's an amazing bladesmith. And uh, it wasn't a one-way street. I actually flew over there to teach a class for him and uh, just had a ball, a but he is one of the most astounding young smiths that I've seen in a while. His, uh, his work is incredible. But he's able to, he, he not only can do the machining and the forging and the stuff, but he's able to think in 3D. And there's a, there's a lot of really good makers out there, and the ones that excel can think in three dimensions. And that, that's not common. That's really not common. That's, uh, that's what sets some of those guys apart. I'm, I come on on the bottom end of that. <laughs> like I said, I look at his work and I wonder why I'm even making five. <laughs> he's, but it's, he's I'm getting phenomenal. back to my old stuff again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, really quick, I'm going to jump into uh, just a sponsor read real quick about our our friends over at Indasa USA. Uh, so Indasa USA, uh, we all know, makes Rhino wet. Uh, the red line is the one that, you know, everybody swears by. And I absolutely love myself. And I know Craig and Jeff absolutely love them, too. And uh, in partnership with Texas Ferry Supply, if you go over to Texas Ferry Supply, they have an awesome selection and a huge supply. Um and if you type in knife talk 10 at checkout you will save 10 percent on your purchase not only on the sandpaper but whatever else you can get from them because they got all kinds of mosaic pins and handle materials and steel and what have you that you need for your knife making so again to go over to texas ferry supply um type in knife talk 10 
at, at uh, checkout and save yourself 10% on your Rhino Wet. The next question, Steve, comes from Diamond Metalworks. What do you enjoy most about in your smithing career? Uh, at this point in time, teaching. Uh, passing the knowledge. That's, uh, that's what I probably enjoy most. I love the creativity, uh, the inventing part of it where you develop technique. I like that a lot. But to share that with somebody that's going to do something with it in the future, uh, that's my legacy. You know, you can't take this stuff with you. And I right. found out a long time ago, if you find a guy that's got secret, I'm not talking about the latest little technique workout, but if the guy's got secret, it usually means he doesn't know much. You need to move on to somebody that doesn't have secrets. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's, you, know, you look, look at what Mariko's got. You know, he caught all kinds of heat for putting his patterns out there, but he's confident in his work. And that shows. It absolutely shows. When you get on the pointy end of the it doesn't matter how long your spear shaft is. When you arrive at a pinnacle of anything, doesn't matter what it is. It could be bicycling or boxing or or uh, water skiing or knife making or, or building airplanes. When you're on the top of that pointy spear, you're looking at the top of all these other spears. And guess what? All those doors will open to you at very high levels. Because you don't have time to run down the bottom, climb up, push that guy off, so you're no threat to it. And so you have access to all this information that you would never have access to if you didn't push yourself to excel. And it, it's a fact of life. You know what, Steve? This this show, we're, we're 50 minutes in, and this show has never been so high level. The wisdom, the, the knowledge, it's incredible. Incredible. You know, when you only have three syllables, you have to work pretty hard to get this. <laughs> combat abrasives make the world's best abrasive belts for knife makers available in any size and at unbelievable prices go take a look at combatabrasives.com and get 15% off with the promo code KNIFETALK15 do it now nice all right, this next question comes from uh, at CJ underscore Hill. Uh, when you first started bladesmithing, what were the biggest challenges you faced? Do you have any today? Thanks. The challenge that I faced when I first started, there was nobody to talk to. There was nobody to share with. There was like a half dozen guys on the planet doing what I was doing. And uh, mm. it, it was Really, there was really a shortage of knowledge. These guys come in now, they're coming in at 10 or 15 years worth of information more than what we had when we started. And I'm not saying enough. Poor old me, we didn't have nothing. There just wasn't nothing. Uh, you know, all you had was this, you know, old traditional knowledge. A lot of it was based on what I call witchcraft, where you had to have your black tub in the dark corner of the room and <laughs> and uh, you had to be pointing due north when you quit quit stuff and <laughs> there was no science involved it was tribal knowledge and a lot of it wasn't correct and of course most of the materials were a lot simpler in those days as well and uh you know ironwork has been a mystery if you build a fire people will come it doesn't matter whether you're burning hot dogs or marshmallows or you're beating steel 
I, when I first started my little shop up in Palaka, Florida, I was in the worst zoning in the city. I was scared to death that I was going to be shut down. Every time I got a new neighbor, I'd go over and beat on their door and go, hey, I, I, I'm over here, and I'm the crossing guard, and uh, the village idiot, and I also make mine. And that, that, that banging and that noise you make, that's me. Uh, if it becomes a bother to you, you come tell me and I'll stop. And I'd start banging. The next thing you know, I'd have six lawn chairs in the yard, and they'd be washing me forward plates. And I never had a complaint, but you had to polish golf clubs and start lawnmower blades and weld this, weld that, fix the lawnmower <laughs> deck. But you just did it. But uh, uh, the main thing was lack of information. And then, uh, of course, hell, you, uh, as the organizations grew, uh, then then there was more people going on. There was more stuff happening in the blacksmith. I helped found the uh, Florida Artists Blacksmith Association. I'm a, a founding member of FABA. And uh, we had the first hammer in in 1982 in Florida in the South. And uh, me and Dr. Carl Van Orman and Pendre uh, put that one together. And we had all the top smiths from the up east and everywhere at that thing. And that was kind of the starting point of all these gatherings. Uh, we had Batson and Fikes and Fog. Jim Smith was down here. Uh, I forget who else. There's a bunch of them. Anyway, if I was going to remember names at this stage of the game, I'm, I'm going to black out. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose, you know, you were doing all this, obviously, be- you know, obviously before the internet and before, you know, there were sort of things like Blade Show and that kind of thing. So it, it must have been just so difficult, you know, learning as you say learning from other people so it was a lot of trial and error i suppose oh we, we've got a question yeah go ahead we've got a question from cara colio knives and says what are your top three tips for somebody who's going to blade show for the first time so it's probably going to be the first time they're going to be meeting other makers and so on would you have any tips for them yeah bring walking shoes uh <laughs> open mind and a backpack full of money Backpack full of money. That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. In case you buy something you really like, you can take it home and examine it at length. I, I just had him as a student in my shop. What a wonderful guy he is. He is brilliant and sharp mind. And uh, yeah, it's. Uh, Who's this? If you go to Blade Show the first time, you need really walking shoes and you need a notebook. Or if you know how to take notes in your phone, take notes in your phone. But that's uh, you need to make note of what it is. Get kind of a game plan and and find out where the people are you want to see, and then go see them and then make it a point to be polite and uh, try not to get them when they're they're trying to sell something to somebody that wants to buy something. Don't interrupt a a sale conference uh, uh, a sale conference, but uh, talk to them about. That's the best place to meet people and exchange. I would go to a show just for that. And I have. Mm. You know, I never go to a show with the idea of, of uh, selling knives. I go there to transfer information, to gather information. And that's where I've met a lot of these new guys and stuff. I, I ran into Mariko out in front of the, the Waverly. We did, we did a little skit, and I played that thing about once a week myself, and I laughed <laughs> because it was so much fun. Who is this? Who is this guy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so fun. 
we had a lot of fun. But uh, it's been great. That's what I do, walking through and planting a little bit. Don't just run from one aisle to the other. And then look for, uh, look for look for people that are doing unusual things. That room is full of uh, some of the best minds in the business. But, uh, you'll you'll never meet so many people gathered in one place that that are their whole interest is in knives or mechanisms or materials. It's a it's a, a good place to get a lot of questions answered. You know, just on that, on Blade Show and everything else, just to kind of change, you know, interest in, in that question, if there's going to be, a, there's a lot of guys who listen to this podcast who are members of the ABS who are going to be taking their journeyman Smith. And what I wanted to know is, and a lot of them have questions that we can't answer because we, uh, we don't really do a lot of uh, testing and stuff like that. If you were to, te- if someone was to say, what are the things that people should be looking out in their knives when they're getting ready to test that they never think of, what would you suggest? So what would you suggest for the knife maker who's ready to test and what he should be doing? Well, the first thing they should do is know their material. And there's a criteria for the ABS steps, and they need to study that and understand it, and they need to make their knives to fit that criteria. It's not about all flash and dash. They don't care about that on the journeyman. I'm on that testing committee and have been for years, been on the master's committee. I'm on that, uh, you know, that uh, committee they put together this year, uh, let the experts look at your knives kind of thing. I'll be glad to answer questions. You get two people, two types of people that come for that. One's the guy that wants to be patted on the head and told he's friggin' wonderful. And he doesn't want any criticism of his work. He just wants you to affirm that he's okay. And then there's the guy that really, truly wants to improve his work. And so what I ask him is point blank. Do you want to be petted on the head and told you're wonderful? I can do that right now. But if you want an honest evaluation, I'll give you that. But you got to understand those honest evaluations are in the eye of the evaluator. They are... Everybody's got a little different view of what something ought to be, and they're subjective, and you have to understand that. Everybody in that room has a different way they look at knives. It's just the personality of the people. Just because I approve it doesn't mean it's going to be approved by everybody in that room, especially those judges, because they're pretty critical. And I'll tell you, some of those judges have failed that test, and some of them failed it a couple times before they got to where they, they are, so they're pretty picky. You've got to have your work right, and especially on the Germans, all the base stuff, the guard has to fit. All the bases have to fit. They don't want to see some some engraving that you did. They want to see that you can fit a handle to a blade and uh, the plunge lines are correct. You know, all that stuff was based in Arkansas, and I may get a little blowback off of it, but it was because they were so active right there with the ABS group, but there was a standard and you have to meet that standard and a, a lot of the holdover is from that area and if you want the real deal you have to follow what that criteria for those first five miles you're not going to blow them away with a razzle dazzle they can care about how left how many hubcaps you put on your car they, they what they want to know is that car cranks up starts and functions and it drives straight they don't they don't give a damn if you've got four different hubcaps on it that's what it, it's like, you know, 
I told Leslie I got one time from Jim Smith on firework. I took him some firework, showed it to him. He said, well, you know, he had a big booming voice. Well, would you put four different up caps on the same car? He said, this stuff is supposed <laughs> to tell a story. I said, okay, I'll fix it. <laughs> I made another knife. But anyway, I take criticism if it helps me. And uh, I take criticism if it makes Laura feel better. I mean, I just do. <laughs> get ready I mean it's, it's, you got to play the game and uh, when you get to the master's level you better be master's level because I'm going to tell you something there's some young guys out there been making four or five years they're Leonardo da Vinci they make stuff that will knock your eyes out they're so far beyond me it's like I, part, I pulled over and parked and went to sleep at a rest stop and there's 80,000 80, miles of traffic that went by me during the night. It's unbelievable the skill set some of these young guys have. And it's because they know how to apply the work and they've got the talent. And I honor those guys. I, I'm happy for them. I think it's great that they're able to pull this off in, in a short amount of time. But you got to stay grounded because you got, the, only, the only parting shot that I'd give anybody is there's nobody on the planet but you that can do your work. Even if a guy clones you, he can only be a copy of you. I had a, I did a pattern one time, and a guy won a national award with it. And uh, this is free cell phone. You know, I got a fax from a guy that said, oh, you did this with your... And I got all incensed about it. And had I waited to see the knife, I'd never said a word. So I was young, and I got all fired up. And I, it was for no reason. I shouldn't have been. I should have been concerned about what I was doing, not what somebody else was doing. Nobody can do my work but me. I'm the only guy that can make Steve's boards or knife, period. You can make copies of them, but you can't make my work. I'm the only one that can put the heart in it. And and I, I'd tell that to any new maker, quit worrying about what the other guy is doing. We've had knife organizations dang near destroy themselves arguing over how a knife ought to be made. If you're honest with your customers, it doesn't make any difference how you make your knife. I don't care if you throw it in a machine and it comes out the other end finished. If you tell your customer that's how it was done, that's just the way I feel about it. But you know, yeah. that's neither here nor there. Okay, I'm off my stuff Talking now. I'm wondering, Steve, what, where do you think things are going? Um, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you've, you've got yourself a laser and, you know, people are buying, you know, cheaper sort of CNC machines and, you know, CAD systems and all that are becoming much more affordable for people to have in their sort of home shop. Where, where do you think things are going? You know, where, where do you think knife making will be in 10, 15 years? It'll be outrageous. It'll be the most creative bunch you've ever seen and it will, it will pale. There's a guy out in Texas. I've never met the guy. I've never had a conversation with it. I've only seen his knives on the internet. And he's selling knives for huge sums of money. And I look at those things and I'm going, the guy is a marketing genius. He is an absolute marketing <laughs> genius. And his work is beautiful. It's beautiful work, but it's not, uh, it's not a Picasso. It's just, mm. The craftsmanship is outstanding. Uh, it's not my cup of tea, but it's, it, and I'm going, man, what an amazing accomplishment that guy has pulled off. 
and he's working with with uh, non-ferrous metals and doing outrageous things with it. And and uh, those are the guys that I, I hold them up in high esteem, very high esteem, because they they found a niche in what they're doing. And uh, it's amazing what's being done. And uh, you look at like Andrew Mears down there. He ought to be in the Metropolitan Museum making dinosaurs or something. That guy <laughs> can make anything out of nothing. <laughs> I see his work and I go, why am I even bothering to make a knife? I ought to just clip my wrist and stop. You know, that's like, <laughs> why? <laughs> Anyways, that's <laughs> how about that? <laughs> it's good enough for me. Yeah. I want to quickly talk about our very last sponsor, which is knifeprint.com. And we just mentioned lasers and CNCs and so on. Um, and personally, I design all of my knives on a screen before before they go anywhere. All my design work is done on a computer. Um, and I get loads of questions from people saying, what CAD systems do you use? How are you doing your, you know, your, your electronic drawings? Um, I use knifeprint.com. So you don't have to install anything. You just go to the website. It's all in the browser. It's free to use, and you can design these beautiful knives, and you can either print them out to paper, so you can use that as a template, or they will print them in, in steel for you. They've got, they've got laser cutters, and they, they'll take your design, and you'll just get them in the mail. You'll get these blanks in the mail. So fantastic. Go take a look at knifeprint.com. It's completely free. They do have a pro version, and if you do want to use that, you can use the uh, the promo code KNIFETALK10 to get 10% off. But go take a look, knifeprint.com. And I think that leads us on to Jeff's next next question too. Steve, this one comes from Sacco Knives. Hey, Steve, can I ask you a question? How have you seen this craft evolve from when you started until now? Big thanks for all your constant sharing of all your knowledge. As well as gone from basic stuff to uh, high-tech stuff. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> people only argue about the tools they don't have. I, I, I think that purest argument is, is the only one I could kind of bring in this. It's, it's, it's grown so much, it's hard to explain. The, the, the level of competency, even in the young makers, is incredible. I mean, these are, like I said, these guys are starting 10, 15 years ahead in a matter of weeks because they got all the information. But uh, it, it's, uh, that's what happens when you got three, three brain cells holding hands. They, there was while they turned loose and drift. But that, uh, it's just an amazing process. And that, and if people would quit arguing over how to make knives, uh, I've had these guys come on, well, you're not, it's, uh, you don't put the soul in it because you use a hair hammer. Well, let me tell you, Mr. Soul of the Air Hammer, I got something for you. I'm one of a handful of guys that can go out and gather up the dirt and reduce it in a fire. And I can make the drills and the chisels and the hammers and the anvil to make my tools for my knife. I physically can and have done that. I've got a blade in my shop right now that was made out of 23 pounds of iron sand that Don Fogg Ford, I made me and Rick Furrier and Don and Larry Fagan and Larry Harley Ford passed, turned that iron sand into a, a, a pound and a half fillet. I forged it, sent it to Don, he forged the blade out of it. He got there and screwed with it, sent it to me, it's in the top of the toolbox in my shop. I can do that. 
say, when is it non-traditional? It's non-traditional when you can't afford the tool or the other guy has one and you don't. And that's, that's absolute nonsense. If you can go make it from dirt, then you complain about tradition. If you're buying a drill or a file or a screwdriver, then you're not traditional according to your standards. So leave that mm-hmm. stuff alone. It doesn't matter how the other guy makes his mind. If he's truthful about how he produces his work, then it's fair play as far as I'm concerned. And don't wrap yourself around the wheel of that. Make your own work. Make it as best you can, and you'll develop a market for it if you have a personality. It's like Neil. Look what Neil's done in four years. and I love him. He's a friend of mine. I, I'm absolutely proud to have the guy as a friend. And it's because he's a marketing genius, and he works hard. He forges in the morning. He grinds in the afternoon, and he does handles in the evening, and he does it all the time. He's a machine. And uh, like I said, I love him to death. And you, you can't, you will never beat anybody that can do that, that has a mind for marketing. Uh, like uh, Jeff and I were just down at Donaldson, Doghouse Gordon. He makes work at night, but he makes hundreds of the same things. And how he does it is his business, and he's good at it. But he stands by his work. If you stand behind your work, it doesn't matter how you get there. If you want to be super creative and do museum pieces, do it. If it takes 30 people to make a piece, do it. The museum is full of what I call committee knives. All the museums are. You know, it's like I do katanas. There's me and one guy that works on them. And the reason there's another guy working on them is because he does all the fittings. I don't have time to learn 30 years of lacquer work and do all that casting and carving. He does it. And I, I'm, that's the only way I'll do one. You want a Japanese sword for me, it's going to have Wally Hostetter's fittings on it. But I, I, you know, I don't have any umbrage with anybody, how they make their knife. Just, just be honest about how you do it. That's all. That's the easy part. Well, I you might know, put my soapbox up again. That's it. <laughs> I love your soapbox. Your soapbox rules. It's it's fantastic. Now, we'd be crazy. We'd be crazy not to ask you some questions about your your wife, Laura, who's an incredibly talented knife maker. Yeah, she is. She is wonderful. She is, uh, was, uh, I think, the first journeyman bladesmith, and, uh, female journeyman bladesmith, and she studied with Bill Skagel. Uh, by proxy, she uh, was Dr. Lucy, Dr. Lucy, who had just passed away, wrote the book on Skagel Knives. And uh, she and I both have had that million dollar collection in this house. I had, uh, we went to lunch one time over at my other shop, and there was a million dollars worth of Skagels laying in the shop floor, and the doors weren't locked. And I told Jim, I said, we need to lock this place up. He said, don't worry about it. I said, there'll be some redneck out there throwing a $30,000 axe up against the tree going, wow, man, I think I can stick it next time. (laughs) 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 We went, look at it. It'll cut an oil drum. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we went to lunch, came back, and it was fine. But she's super. What what constitutes what what is a Skagel knife? Skagel Bill Skagel was a guy that made knives. He's the one that taught Bo Randall to make knives. He's the one that started Randall wanting to make knives back prior to World War Two, and he forged. He was up in uh, Silver uh, 
Silver Lake, Michigan, and he forged. He's a nice old guy, and uh, he forged a lot of blades. And uh, those he made kitchen knives, hunt knives, all that kind of stuff. But they're typically stacked handle handles. You saw a lot of it in World War II where they stacked different materials, but these were stacked um, brass and bronze and leather, and then they had a piece of staghorn on the end. And they cut like crazy. They had a nice shape to them. Uh, there was no ricasso. Uh, of course, that had got him kicked out of the journeyman's test, but he, <laughs> he basically was the first uh, well-renowned uh, blade forger in the U.S. that I know of other than James Black. Uh, there must have been hundreds of blacksmiths making knives all over the country, but this guy here was recognized in the 30s. He lived up until the 60s. He passed away. I've been in his shop. I've held all of his folders, all the folders. Jim Lucy gathered up all that stuff after Skagel died. And, uh, that guy, uh, if uh, your kid had polio, he'd make you a set of braces for the kid. He was that kind of guy. He got in a pissing match with a power company and uh, just made his own generator, and he ran everything off a line shaft. That little single-cylinder engine he'd run, and a homemade generator he'd run to do stuff. And uh, he was kind of honry. I, I take after that part. And he was able to do a lot with nothing. But that's what happened in the Depression kids. They could make anything out of nothing. And they did. Mm. And so she was out of that school. Okay, that that was your wife. She was out of his school. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. You, you've mentioned so many like amazing names, you know, that have, have steered the way that we that we all make blades now and, and that kind of thing. Um, but we have this bit of the show every week, which we call a community showcase. And the reason for that is we like to um, sort of shout out to somebody who – does an amazing job, uh, but maybe doesn't get the recognition that they deserve. Community Showcase. So is there anybody that, that that you can think of from the top of your head who you think their work is just incredible, but that nobody gets to see it? You know, we, we, should, all be, we should all be sort of following these people. Oh, I can think of a couple right off the top of my head. And one of them is Josh Prince. That's, uh, he's up in Rhode Island. The work pattern work he's sure. doing is just absolutely phenomenal. And then there's, of course, there's Salem Straub out on the West Coast. And, of course, Salem's pretty well known. And then for fit and finish and design work, Andrew Mears is hard to beat. P.S., just to let you know, and Josh Smith Henning, is now Henning, being... Henning. yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just wanted to tell you that Josh Prince is now being revived <laughs> because he listens to this podcast, and I'm sure that the fact that you mentioned his name, someone's reviving him with smelling salts. <laughs> I love that guy. I, I think we're related. I absolutely do. He sees things in nature that I see, and uh, I just am absolutely amazed at some of the stuff he sees. Uh, he's far beyond the night just this guy is, he's living in an alternate universe, and I just happen to pass through part of it now and then. I see him in there, and I'm grateful he's on the planet. He's, he's something else. He really is. He's exceptional. Uh, well, he's not being locked in a box. You know, he, he, he's doing his own thing. Jurgen Steinau is a friend of mine, and uh, he, I remember when he came in the 90s, 
people looking at his work said, oh, you'll never sell that. You'll never sell that work. And he stayed true to himself. Now his folders are thirty and $40,000 a piece for the same knife he was selling for 1500 2000 in the 90s. That's, uh, because he stayed true to himself. You can see a Jurgen Steinel knife across the room, and you know it's him. It's just amazing, guy. And uh, the other one, mm. I, I'll throw this guy in, is Antonio Fogaritu. And on, Antonio Fogaritu's family, Sardinian, his family has been making knives for 100 years. Almost 20 years ago, it may have been 20 years ago, he wanted to break out of that traditional knife mold and his family sent him to me and i had that kid in my shop for 15 days and he went home and within months he had surpassed everything that i had done as far as uh pattern control and that kind of stuff with the exception of a couple of things but his work now is absolutely museum quality i had nothing to do with that that had to do with what he did with the information he got from me. I had no control over what he did with the information after he left, but he he is an absolute genius with uh, design and development, and he's a guy to look at. He, he's very famous in Europe, but uh, he's not real famous here that I know of, but he is he's incredible work. But the, the world's full of them. I mean, these they're legion, these guys that do this fantastic work. They're, they're all over the place now. I'm depressed. I, I need to go make a toothpick or something. <laughs> 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 what are we going to do, Steve? We finish every show with, well, normally we talk about what we'd like, because we do the show every week, me, me and the guys, and we, and we generally talk about what we'd like to achieve in the week. So when we come back next week, we can see what we've done. But let's change things up a bit. And what we're going to do is, what would be your your dream going forward for knife making? Where would you like to see things go in? You know, um, yeah. What what what's the dream for knife making as as a community, as as a skill? What what would you like to see things happening? I would like to see people be a little kinder to one another. Uh, what uh, you know, I. The problem is, you've got a bunch of young guys, and I've seen them come and go. I've seen hundreds of them come and go, and some of them without, some without. But they don't realize they're the only person that is responsible for their work or their actions. You can't sell a knife sitting behind the table with the buzzers circling your table. It ain't happening. It's, uh, people need to learn how to present themselves. And I would like to you know, there's not a class on personality, or I'd buy one. That's a, <laughs> I'd get a better one than I have. I think, <laughs> I think you're selling. Well, I, I think you're selling like, them. I'd I think like you're selling them, Steve. People. I don't know. We'll see. But what I'd like, what I'd like to do is, is, is uh, see people quit all this worrying about what the other guy's doing. It doesn't matter what the other guy's doing. Oh, you're stealing my market share. No, you're not. You're not producing the knives that take that market share. If a guy's winning, you know, if you hang out with people that are crying and complaining, guess what? That's what you hear. And I, your presentation is who you are. You, you only get one, one shot at that. You know, I don't know. I can't fix it. 
Now, I, I, I'm a work in progress. I, I, you know, I had people call me out on stuff, and, and I, I've been hot-headed from time to time. I probably should have kept my mouth shut. <clears throat> but I, every once in a while, it just flies open and things fly out, you know? And, and the, the problem is you can't call it back. And, uh, once you've said, you can't change one syllable you said yesterday, but you can improve what you're going to do tomorrow. <clears throat> you can't call anything back. And I've made some serious mistakes in this business with my mouth and my actions. And uh, if I've offended people, I apologize because I'm going on. I ain't living in there. I don't live in the past, and I don't live in negativity. I want to see people. I want to see people create and and do the best they can do. And that's I'm going to try to help that process. I want to see people succeed. That's what I'm looking for. And. Uh, you know, if somebody doesn't want to listen, that's fine. You know, I've had students that didn't listen. I've had students that you can't pour enough in them, and then I've had other ones that were like a a, a broken vase that had a hole in the side, and you pour all this information on top, and it runs out faster, and you put it in there. And, and to me, that's, that's a terrible waste of time and money, but it is what it is. You know, not everybody is, is created the same. We're all different. So, that's kind of it. You know what? I want, yeah. I think that's a good message to end the show on. Be nice. Couldn't agree more. We we've got to thank you so much, Steve, for, for you know taking the time out, coming on the show. It's just been great to hear from you and to hear your your amazing stories and and hear about different makers that you know I I had didn't know about and I can now go off and I can do a bit of research and so on. It's just been great. Well, there's some there's some good ones out there, and uh, I've had uh, some of them I've had for friends for many many years, and some of them are newer friends. Uh, like Jeff and I, at, uh, I walk in my in, in my kitchen, and the first thing I see is my grandfather's fishing rod and a row of his old lures and my dad's old lures and this great big lure that Jeff made me, and it makes me smile every time I see it. Well, um, and, and I got one more thing to throw in. I've got a little bar of steel I got from Mariko, and that's fixing to be the collab between him and me. I'm going to make a pocket knife out of that. Mm. And that'll, that'll be a prize winning hog. Yeah, girl. <laughs> should be a looker. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you guys inviting me on and, and – uh, I appreciate uh, everything you guys do for the business because this is an important part of it. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you. Hopefully we speak to you again soon. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.